0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is Tales from the Great Famine in Dublin. This episode is going to bring you back to the 1840s and looks at what life was like during the Great Famine in the neighbourhood where I live in Dublin. I headed out with a microphone and recorded most of this episode in the sites where these events took place. As much as possible I've also used accounts from the time so it's a pretty different show. The podcast looks at how various people reacted, survived and suffered in this small corner of Dublin during what was one of the most important events in Irish history. These include everyone from the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland to a 13 year old girl imprisoned for a week for not paying a train ticket. It's all ahead of us. In recent episodes of the show I have mentioned my plans to make a major series on the Great Famine which is planned to run through 2017. This episode gives you a sense of what that could be like. In order to make that series, I need your support and I have launched a campaign at the website Patreon. Patreon allows you to support my research by donating a small amount each month. In return, you will get a bonus episode, a patron's guide to each show and much more. You can find out all about it and support this series at patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. Now to today's show. Before I begin I want to flag that it is recorded in the various sites and buildings where these events took place so sometimes there is minor background noise but before we get out and about and visit these locations I start by just explaining a bit about what Ireland and Dublin was like in the 1840s. In 1841 the British government conducted a census of Ireland. In that census we get a snapshot of Dublin and wider society just as it was about to fall off a precipice. Four years later the great famine set in and by the time it had come to an end around 1852 life in Dublin and Ireland was changed forever. The Dublin pictured in that census was a radically different place to the modern city. Firstly it was far smaller. Dublin only extended for a mile in all directions from the city centre. So if you know Dublin, basically there was green fields inside the North Circular and South Circular roads. While the population of the island approached 9 million in 1841, Dublin only accounted for around 230,000 people. Today's city is unrecognisable in comparison in terms of sheer size. For example, in the area I live, Cabra, There was under 600 people living here in 1841, but today the population stands somewhere around 20,000. In the 19th century, a series of institutions ranging from British army barracks to asylums, prisons and workhouses occupied much of the land between Cabra and Dublin City. These provide a rich history of life from any period, but particularly during the Great Famine. Before we visit these places, it's worth saying a few words about the Great Famine itself. While it was triggered by the collapse of the potato crop when blight struck from 1845 onwards, the origins of this crisis lay much deeper in Irish history and beyond the scope of today's show. However, it's worth bearing in mind that the story of the Great Famine is much broader than the story of the failure of just one crop. The collapse of the potato triggered a much wider implosion of the Irish economy and it affected every corner of the island, rural and urban. It was this coupled with a ruthless and callous reaction from the British authorities particularly after 1847 which left Ireland devastated. By 1852 nearly 1 million people had died and around 1 million had emigrated. Today's show looks at the lives of people in one small corner of Dublin and doesn't attempt to explain the entire event or its complex history, that's for my upcoming series. This is just snapshots of life from the homes of the powerful to the prison cells of the powerless. We will begin in the Phoenix Park, a large park on the outskirts of Victorian Dublin, then the only public park in Ireland. It was also where the residence of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland was. For the first stop in this episode, I'm standing in front of what is known as Oris and Uktharaon, the residence of the President of Ireland. In the 19th century, it was known as the Viceregal Lodge, home to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the most senior British figure on the island. Now, the word lodge gives off the impression that it might be a small house. It's nothing of the sort, the Viceregal Lodge was a huge mansion. As it was home to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, there are literally thousands of letters written here and meetings held that I could recall but I have chosen one from November 1845 when a delegation of powerful figures from across Ireland came to meet the Lord Lieutenant and expressed their concerns about the failure of the potato crop. His response was a grim portent of what lay ahead for Ireland. Now, This delegation included the Lord Mayor of Dublin, several MPs and the Duke of Leinster. They were concerned about reports from across Ireland which indicated that the potato crop had been devastated by what was then a mysterious disease the island already faced the prospect of serious food shortages. They suggested port closures to keep food in the country, massive aid of £1 million and employment schemes. The Lord Lieutenant read the following reply. The Vice Regal Lodge, Monday, November 3rd, 1845. My Lord Mayor and gentlemen, it can scarcely be necessary for me to assure you the state of the potato crop has for some time occupied and still occupies the most anxious attention of the government. Scientific men have been sent over from England to cooperate with those of this country in endeavouring to investigate the nature of the disease. The Lord Lieutenant continued then to address the demands of the delegation, saying that he was monitoring the situation but claimed there was no immediate pressure on the market. To decide under such circumstances would be premature, particularly as there is no reason to hope that though the disease exists in some localities, in others it has but partially manifested itself. I don't think I need to say much about how disastrous this decision to wait and see was in 1845. In hindsight it was utterly callous and disastrous. While some might say hindsight is a great thing, a man like the Lord Lieutenant cannot be absolved of guilt easily. Others had some sense of what was unfolding even in November 1845. The newspaper The Nation criticised his move. The Nation, November 8th 1845 we never hoped much from the deputation to the lord lieutenant but a nation is on the eve of the greatest affliction god sends as a trial or a punishment the harvest which promised abundantly is suddenly stricken with a mysterious malady and a gloom dark as death is over the hope of the people this was just one of what would become a litany of appalling reactions to the great famine in ireland by the british authorities next i'm heading out of the phoenix park towards dublin where i'll stop at colin's barracks to look at one of the more bizarre reactions to the Great Famine. So now I'm standing outside what was once the biggest army barracks in the world. Known as the Royal Barracks in the 19th century it is today known as Collins Barracks. Built in 1701 it housed a large garrison of British soldiers through the 18th and 19th centuries. The barracks gained notoriety after the 1798 rebellion when the British army tortured and killed hundreds of rebels here. Today it's a somewhat more tranquil spot as it's home to the National Museum of Decorative Arts and History. From where I'm standing now I can look south and directly across the River Liffey at the famous Guinness Brewery at St James's Gate. However between the river and where I'm standing is a narrow long park known as the Croppies Acre. This reputedly became a mass grave for the rebels of 1798 but during the great famine the crappie's acre was the scene of one of the most bizarre and perverse spectacles. With the majority of the population facing starvation from 1845 onwards numerous attempts were made to do something. In 1847 the British government began a policy of opening soup kitchens. This attracted a famous French chef Alexis Sawyer who got involved lending a certain amount of prestige to the idea. Sawyer was well known at the time and I guess you could say he was a celebrity chef, a Gordon Ramsay or Nigella Lawson of their day. Sawyer appears to have been genuinely moved by the situation in Ireland and came up with a recipe for what he claimed was a nourishing soup which he said he could make for only 3 pence per gallon. While cheap Sawyer's soup was woefully inadequate. For 9 litres of water he only added 250 grams of leg beef, 2 onions, 250 grams of flour 250 grams of pearl barley, 100 grams of salt and 15 grams of brown sugar. The beef by his own admission was purely for taste and would have no nutritional value at all. The overall final substance provided few calories and lacked protein and was totally inadequate. One source called it poor soup rather than soup for the poor. The Archbishop of Chum described it as a worthless mass of roots in warm water. The press in England however lauded Sawyer and almost elevated him to a saviour of Ireland of sorts. For his part Sawyer did take a hands on approach and designed a kitchen where his soup would be manufactured in large quantities each day. Arriving in Dublin he oversaw its construction on this green in front of where I'm standing right now. It opened for business on April 5th 1847. The structure itself was an impressive tent, I'll be putting a contemporary drawing of it in the Patron's Guide to this episode. However, while it streamlined production, it would be judged and remembered for what happened on that opening day. The Irish press and the wider public were dubious about the idea of soup kitchens in general, but Sawyer's idea could scarcely have gotten off to a worse start. On that opening day, the rich and powerful of Dublin society arrived down and were allowed to watch the starving people gather to be fed for a small fee. This must have been utterly humiliating. Increasingly, many began to see Sawyer's spectacle as one which was about optics rather than a meaningful effort to feed the poor. The Nation, an Irish nationalist newspaper, lampooned the opening ceremony of this supposedly model soup kitchen. Those genteel persons did actually file through the yet unpolluted, by contact with rags, soup kitchen and handled the spoons, yet untainted, by the lip of a beggar, and even then and there vouched safe to sip the dysentery juice itself. Wherein Ireland is soon to be drenched during the ensuing summer and pronounced it good. It's a pretty understandable reaction. Imagine if you were starving and a celebrity chef turned up and carried on like this. While his project was doomed to failure, Sawyer himself left Ireland amid pomp and ceremony in late April and was lauded in England on his return for what was little more than a symbolic gesture in the end. Indeed it has since been argued that soup like Sawyer's actually made the situation worse undermining the health of the starving and paving the way for disease which claimed so many lives in the 1840s and early 1850s that said it should be noted alexis sawyer obviously could not have known this next we're going one kilometer to the north or so to the site of one of dublin's workhouses and the female prison
1: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend
0: So now let's continue our journey to the North Dublin Union Workhouse. I've arrived now in what is a bit of a busier location than Collins's barracks. It's a stretch of land that lay to the northwest of Victorian Dublin, which housed various institutions from the city workhouse to jails, including the women's prison and mental institutions. Right now I'm standing right in the middle of where those institutions once stood. Much of the area today is a building site as it has been transformed into the campus of the new Dublin Institute of Technology. The stark outline of what was once the Richmond Lunatic Asylum still dominates the skyline when you look towards the city centre. In the 19th century this stood side by side with one of the two Dublin workhouses which is now totally gone. Workhouses above all other buildings were synonymous with the suffering of the Great Famine. They were something of a new concept at the time and these buildings were designed to feed and house the destitute poor. They were commissioned for, and I quote, the effectual relief of the destitute poor in Ireland. However, empathy and caring was not part of the ethos. Influenced by Victorian attitudes, they were designed to be the last port of call where only the truly desperate would come. You literally had to have no property or possessions before you were allowed in. While they were fed, the people inside were essentially treated like convicts. They were even labelled inmates. Workhouses were built to look similar to prisons. Inside the walls the so-called inmates were subjected to a harsh regime where men and women were segregated and daily life was controlled. While 130 similar structures were built across Ireland by 1845 they were totally unequipped to deal with the situation once the Great Famine set in. As the numbers of absolutely destitute people soared workhouses were quickly overcrowded and disease inside the walls became rampant. Through the course of the Great Famine one third of the million or so people who died died perished inside buildings just like the one that stood here. In 1847 alone nearly 70,000 people died in workhouses across Ireland. This stark letter written by the chaplain of the North Dublin workhouse which stood on the site that I am now looking at illustrates the change in the situation between 1842 and 1847. The North Union Workhouse, Dublin, May the 21st 1847 For the 13 weeks of the year of 1842, corresponding to the 13 weeks which have just now passed, the number of inmates in this workhouse ranged from 1850 to 1950. The amount of deaths amongst them was 78. During the last 13 weeks, the number of inmates varied from 2750 to 2850. If the mortality had increased in accordance with the ratio, the deaths should have been 105. In point of fact, how many have died during that period? No less than 443. And yet a death from sheer starvation is, I believe, not yet, thank God, known in Dublin. A rather clear indication, I take this to be, that there is, as you say, a famine disease, that may be prevented but not cured. I remain your faithful servant, P. Murphy, Roman Catholic chaplain to the North Dublin Union Workhouse. From this account it's clear that by 1847 there was already an extra 800 people living in a building that was designed only to accommodate 2,000 people. The controlled nature of life, the fear of disease and the overcrowding often left people with difficult decisions. They were not actually prisoners so they could leave if they wished but outside the walls the poverty and starvation that they had fled awaited them. When I was sifting through newspaper reports about this site I came across the tragic story of a man called George Renshaw who lived very close to here just down on Church Street and while he had been in the workhouse he decided to leave. His is a life often forgotten when we look at the history of the Great Famine, that is of people who had serious problems in their lives before starvation set in. Their chances of survival were slim, for George Renshaw he suffered from chronic alcohol addiction. Freeman's Journal March ninth, 1850 Yesterday an inquest was held at 41 Church Street on the body of George Renshaw aged 27. Peter Keegan owner of a cellar belonging to the house stated that the deceased had at a former period lodged with him for about six months but left and went to the North Dublin Union workhouse for which he for some time remained as an inmate. On Tuesday night he then returned and slept in the cellar. He left on the following morning for the purpose he said of re-entering the workhouse but instead of doing so took to the drink, the means being supplied it was supposed by pledging his articles of clothing. At about 7 o'clock on Thursday morning he knocked at the door of the cellar and complained of the most burning thirst of shivering and of violent cramps. After he had a cup of tea and then some grog his stomach was unable to retain any of these liquids and the thirst continued. He was offered food but refused it. After continuing in a state of suffering throughout the day sometimes walking about and occasionally lying on the bed, he finally settled down on the latter and in the course of the night was found dead by another lodger. Undoubtedly by consuming large amounts of alcohol after not eating properly for perhaps weeks George Renshaw seems to have had an awful death. Stories like his are crucial as they illustrate where individuals' everyday problems collided with the wider catastrophe of the Great Famine. Next we need to take the short journey north to what was the women's jail in Grange Gorman. The newspapers from the time are full of heart-wrenching stories of what happened there. I've just walked up the road a few hundred metres and I'm now standing at the entrance to what was the women's prison in Grange-Gorman. The gate is solid wood with metal studs and is pretty imposing. The building is in slightly better shape than most of the early 19th century structures in this area but in the coming years it too is set for a major overhaul. As it is being incorporated into the new Dublin Institute of Technology campus in the area. During the famine this as I said was the women's prison. For me this is where I came across the most tragic stories. First we have this example of a woman who tragically could no longer look after her children. The Freeman's journal February 14th 1848. A charge against a woman named Connell for deserting her child who was admitted to the workhouse in October last, On the declaration of Mary Holmes who proves that Connell left the child in her room and did not return. Mr. McGee asked the prisoner would she take her child out of the workhouse and support her to which she positively refused and she was then sentenced to three months imprisonment and hard labour. While no motive was given it seems likely that if the mother was willing to go to prison herself rather than take her child she was incapable of providing for the child. This scenario can't have been uncommon in an Ireland where many adults couldn't feed themselves. Indeed, some women committed crimes just to get into prison, presumably in the knowledge that they would at least be fed there. The Freeman's Journal, February 25th, 1846 Thomas Crawford charged Anne Fitzgerald with having maliciously broken a gas lamp in Camden Street the night before with a stone. The prisoner said she broke the lamp because she wanted to get into prison. She was sent to Grange Gorman Penitentiary for seven days. Despite the terrible famine conditions, the authorities of the day were not forgiving for even the most minor of misdemeanours. Next we hear the case of the 13-year-old Mary Keane who ended up here, in this building in front of me, in 1847. The Nina Guardian, March the 27th, 1850 A young girl named Mary Keane, who was about 13 years of age, was in custody, charged under the following circumstances. James Duffy, a ticket collector, the Great Southern and Western Railway Company. Stated, the prisoner came from Ballybrophy on the 24th in a third-class carriage without having paid the fare. Her history is as follows. Her father, Darby Keane, left about 18 months or two years ago. Her mother is dead. Her uncle, Michael, supported her since. The magistrate sent the prisoner to Grange Gorman for seven days. Standing here now, the building looks dilapidated, silent and almost empty. But these stories certainly cast it in a different light. Cruel as the fate of the 13 year old Mary Keane was, some prisoners fared worse. In December 1850 hundreds of women from across Ireland were gathered inside the walls of Grange Gorman prison. Most to commit her minor thefts, Hannah Reardon had stolen bread or Julia Cronin for example had stolen three sheep and a lamb. They were not being brought here to serve their sentences in the prison however. The Freemans Journal now takes up the story. The Freeman's Journal, December the 12th, 1849. It is some days since the transport ship arrived from the Thames to Kingston Harbour, that's Dunyrie Port outside Dublin, having been chartered by the government for the conveyance of female convicts under sentence of transportation to Hobart Town, Van Diemen's Land. In the course of the last week, the convicts, all or nearly all young creatures, some of them mere girls, were brought down from the Grange-Gorman depot and embarked on board the transport. They numbered about 380 and owing to the humane regulation of not severing infants and growing children from their mothers, the human freight included 60 more compromising of infants and children belonging to the convicts. The great majority of the poor creatures belonged to the mass of the people, or what is conveniently termed the lower order, and are of course Catholics. This ship arrived in Tasmania, Australia on May 9, 1850. It's almost certain that none of these women ever returned to Ireland. To conclude, I want to return to the Phoenix Park where I began. I'm now standing in what's known as the 15 acres in the Phoenix Park. In 1847, this was a site of great celebration. Now, perverse as this sounds... I am telling you this as a story from the great famine to highlight the fact that not everyone suffered in Ireland during the horrors between 1845 and 1852. While the potato crop on which many depended for survival collapsed, other foodstuffs were not affected and large amounts of food continued to be exported from Ireland. Why this happened is beyond the scope of this episode but will be certainly something I will be getting into detail in my upcoming series. But it suffices to say that many were not impoverished in an Ireland of terrible inequality. On this field where I am now standing, the British authorities gathered for what was a lavish celebration to mark the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 when Napoleon was finally defeated. This account from the Cork Examiner on the 26th of June 1847 speaks for itself. The Cork Examiner June 26th 1847 The 32nd anniversary of the memorable victory of Waterloo was celebrated yesterday by a grand review and sham fight in the Phoenix Park. The day was most favourable and the multitude of persons assembled was commensurate with the enjoyment to be derived from so exciting a scene under such favourable auspices. The troops were on the ground shortly after 11 and at half past 12 the line was formed. At one o'clock His Excellency, the Lord Justice Lieutenant General Commanding, Sir Edward Blakeney arrived on the ground, accompanied by a numerous and brilliant staff. A ball given by His Excellency, the Lieutenant General, at the Royal Hospital Kilmainham last evening, was on the most extended scale of generous hospitality. The appearance of the great hall of the Royal Hospital, brilliantly lighted and filled with beauty and fashion, was magnificent. Shortly after ten, the company began to arrive in the large square and entered the hall of the ante-room, proceeding through the drawing-room, to the grand hall or dancing saloon. A quarter to eleven, Edward Blackney received the Duke of Leinster and the Lord Chancellor who were escorted to a raised seat. The band played the national anthem. The scene was animated and brilliant, Sir Edward and his amiable consort were the most urbane and attentive to their distinguished guests, who with unabated enjoyment kept up the festivities till dawn. From where I am now standing I can just see across the river Liffey to Kilmainham where that ball took place. The anger, resentment and bitterness among the poor of Dublin on that evening must have been palpable. This brings today's show to a close. These stories are just a small sample from one small corner of Dublin. While no area of Ireland emerged unscathed the story of the great famine varied massively from place to place. Whether it's accounts of landless labourers living in cabins in the west of Ireland or the urban poor living in cities like Belfast or Dublin. These all form part of one of the most important events in our history. As I said, next year I want to tell these stories in a major podcast series on the Great Famine. But I need your help to do this. You can get involved at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. In return for your support you get lots of extra podcasts, a patron's guide to each episode and much more. You can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. dot com forward slash Irish Podcast.